0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Monday, August 15th, 2022, and we're going to have some uh, great content for you up at Hot Air. If you are a VIP member, you will probably have already seen my very lengthy fisking, uh, semi-fisking, I guess, of the Atlantic's article on how the rosary is now an extremist symbol. Uh, Yes, the rosary. (laughs) Catholics around the world are going, the rosary? <laughs> Wait a minute, the rosary is extremist? Have you seen people praying the rosary? Um, apparently, The Atlantic has not. Uh, someone named Daniel Paniton uh, decided that he was going to write about how because there are uh, you know, hard right uh, Christian nationalists within the Catholic community that use the rosary in some of their pictorial symbolism that it has become an extremist an extremist symbol these people literally have thousands of followers on social media he argues i mean this is one of the silliest anti-catholic screeds i've ever even read and it follows two days (laughs) two days after the atlantic same magazine the atlantic ran an article explaining that Uh, Republicans pouncing all over Jane's revenge for actually taking credit for actual violent acts is simply a a dodge by the right to hide their own extremism. So you've got The Atlantic arguing that an actual group that's taking credit for committing actual violent acts against pro-life facilities since the leak of the Dobbs decision and who's calling for even more of these types of violent actions is somehow just a just a dodge for the right but the people who are just posting pictures of the rosary have suddenly transformed the rosary from its millennial <laughs> and i mean millennium you know millennium long not millennial in terms of generations in the united states but millennium long status as a prayer of the faithful for spiritual warfare. (laughs) I mean, it goes on about how this is a symbol of manliness among rad trad Catholics. Maybe it is for a few rad trad Catholics, but that's not the criticism I've always heard of the, the rosary. The criticism I've heard of the rosary is exactly the opposite. So if you get a chance, be sure to check out my VIP column. It's lengthy because I had a lot to say about this. And I hope that you enjoy it. And if you're not a member of the VIP or VIP Gold uh, Club here at Hot Air, uh, you get a chance to to add on to that. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you how you do it at the end of this podcast. So stay tuned for that. Uh, what else do we have going on? We've got a couple of uh, Karine Jean-Pierre posts. Jazz writes about how uh, Jean-Pierre said that the White House didn't get briefed on legal probes into Trump. You should check that out. That was a that there's a lot of traffic on that post today. I have a post later on where uh, Jean-Pierre was confronted by ABC's John Carl on uh, this week. On Sunday, talking, asking her, isn't it Orwellian to call a bill the Inflation Reduction Act when it doesn't reduce inflation? And then Jean-Pierre went on to basically prove John Carl's point by talking about all the things that this bill does, none of which <laughs> has any direct impact on inflation and actual, none of it even has indirect impact on inflation as both the CBO and the Penn Wharton study proved. Uh, so Orwellian it is, but she does appreciate the question. So that's kind of nice. Got, you know, John Carl's got that going for him with it. Um, other news today, and um, this is, I think, one of the most infuriating. Uh, we're on the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's bug out from Afghanistan. And Politico uh, last night uh, put up a story saying that they have new information from the State Department and House Republicans that the State Department has managed to exfiltrate 800 American citizens out of Afghanistan over the last year um, and perhaps another 600 uh, legal permanent residents, LPRs or green card holders. That's out of an estimated 14,000, a number that we found out in early November of last year that got left behind by Joe Biden in Afghanistan. We're literally only getting out 10% of the people that he abandoned. And we still don't know how many American citizens are left. But we do know that the pace of getting them out has slowed down because in December, the State Department claimed that they had exfiltrated a combined 900 Americans, both citizens and LPRs, out of Afghanistan. Mostly, by the way, through the efforts of private groups, not through official State Department efforts. And that means that we've only um, exfiltrated another 700, uh, in the eight months since that report was made public. And so we are actually slowing the rate of exfiltrations out of Afghanistan, and we have somewhere north of 12,500 or so that are still left behind Taliban lines. After a full year of our abandonment of, of them in the first place, it's a disgrace and the New York Times has a, a piece that doesn't really actually reflect on that, but reflects on the fact that the Taliban turned out to be exactly what the Taliban were like before, too, to our great shock. They hadn't modernized. They hadn't mellowed. They hadn't moderated. They had not become, as we often refer to them, the kinder, gentler Taliban that Joe Biden thought he was getting. Um, this is a disgrace. And it is something that we should all be aware of and we should all be asking questions about, just like our friend John Andrasik does from uh, Five for Fighting. He's been trying to fund these exfiltration efforts ever since, the, ever since we left Afghanistan, ever since we bugged out and left those people behind. Not just the Americans, but also the allies that worked with us. That number in the tens of thousands, perhaps as many as 60,000, uh, that should have gotten, we should have gotten out before we bugged out. Uh, that is a disgraceful legacy, and it is clearly why, and I, I might discuss this in a later post, why Joe Biden's confidence uh, crisis uh, has not just started, but deepened for the past year. Uh, it's something I predicted right away. Uh, a lot of people were saying, no, 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 That's not it. It's just a, it's a gas price issue. It's a COVID issue. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. This started with his bug out in Afghanistan because it exposed Joe Biden as a hypocrite as a deeply dishonest politician, somebody who is willing to say anything to get what he wants. And this is a year on, still the perception of Joe Biden. More coming up, of course, at Hot Air, so be sure to check it out. Albin has got a great post today about how a uh, pro- Putin reporter may have given away uh, a a very uh, important strategic or at least um, uh, political location in the Donbas, which the Ukrainians um, then wiped off the map. You got to read this one; it's great. it has got a great uh, post coming up on that. John Fetterman returned to the campaign trail this weekend, and the big question is: is Did he spook his own supporters? In his performance at the at the stump, certainly happy that John Fetterman has recovered well enough from his stroke to do to at least try this. But it's clear that he was in over his head, and it was a little scary uh, at times to listen to how he was struggling to remain coherent. This may become a bigger issue for Democrats in Pennsylvania than they may have considered, and certainly the. Question of honesty from the Fetterman campaign, not from Fetterman himself, of course, who was sidelined by his uh, his severe stroke. Uh, but the but the campaign itself, the honesty of the campaign itself, may come into question. So stay tuned for all that. Plenty more coming up at Hot Air. Right now, I want to introduce Reason's Reason Magazine's Reason.com, uh, Emma Camp, who wrote the article last week, or maybe about ten days ago now. Uh, Regarding the protest at UC Berkeley over low-income housing and homeless housing, where the crowd attacked workers for building low-income and homeless housing. If that doesn't make any sense to you, well, it didn't to Emma Camp either. And we had a delightful conversation. And you're going to want to find out why she has three Ms in her name on Twitter. It's at E-M-M-M. M a underscore camp underscore. And there's a story behind that. That's not just a typo. There's a great story behind that. So stay tuned for Emma camp and then stay tuned after that to find out how you can join our VIP and VIP gold, gold clubs. Welcome back everyone to the Ed Morrissey show podcast. And uh, I'm pleased to introduce Emma camp from reason.com who wrote a great piece uh, last week, and uh, regarding a a protest at UC Berkeley, where human uh, were uh, you know uh, housing is a human right, and they're protesting for housing, and uh, in protesting for housing, they assaulted workers who were building uh, low cost, low income housing for students and homeless people. Emma, you know, I tweeted this out, and one of my friends who works for NBC News, Mark Caputo, I don't know if you actually saw this tweet. <laughs> tweeted back and said this can't possibly be true
1: (laughs) i thought that too
0: (laughs) so so tell us how is this possible how did how did a how did a group of protesters at uc berkeley physically assault workers who who are building low-income student and homeless housing as a protest to make housing a human right
1: Uh, it really (laughs) feels like something that someone like hooked up at like a TV writer's room for like a Simpsons episode or something about like, what will make people the, the angriest, right, because you have something like where these kind of crazy campus left-wing protesters, and actually a lot of them are were members of the community in Berkeley, um, protesting something that you think left-wing protesters would be really in favor of, right, which is low-income housing and housing for the homeless. So the, the main point of contention, so why these protesters who declared that housing is a human right are so upset, really goes down to the history of People's Park in Berkeley. Right. Um, it's this, prote- it's this uh, park that has historically been the site of a lot of protest, um, especially during the free speech movement. There was a protest-turned-riot in 1969 in which um, several dozen people were injured and one were killed when police fired Buck and Birdshot into the crowd. Um, so it has this very specific history, Is this very kind of like, I don't know, punk, Space. It's it's not really manicured. There's a lot of times graffiti everywhere. There, you know, will be random, you know, drum circles, rock shows, whatever. And currently, or I guess not, not anymore. But until very recently, it was also the site of one of San Francisco's many very famous uh, homeless tent encampments. Um, and so the the protest really goes down to both: do not, you know, disturb this beautiful sacred space, and uh, kind of politics surrounding homelessness. The irony, of course, with the claims that they're bulldozing People's Park is that uh, 60% of the park will still be uh, untouched after this project. They're only using 40% of it for student housing, but that is 40% too much for these protesters. Um, And then the other element is very strange, I would say, kind of particularly leftist uh, politics around homelessness. So yeah. there were about 50 homeless people um, living in this park, in kind of that tent encampment. And the university basically offered to put them up in a motel. I believe the city was funding a lot of that too. Uh, put them up in a motel for the duration of construction. Um, and almost all of the homeless people living there took them up on that offer, right? That, that makes a lot of logical sense, right? You can go from living in a place with no doors that lock, no running water, you know, you can have horrible, violent things happen to you all the time versus a place where you get free food and running water, doors are lock. It seems very obvious that if you are living in this situation, you would
0: jump up a chance to get a
1: free place to stay. Right. However, according to these protests, this is forceful displacement um, because you were telling people. Right. Exactly. I mean,
0: it's it's so they, condescending. They
1: <laughs> It it is exactly so. It reminds me a lot. um, There's this psychology PhD student named Rob Henderson um, who wrote about this this idea called um, luxury beliefs. They're basically these ideas held by like the wealthy, educated classes about kind of poor people or oppressed people um, that they themselves often barely identify with and kind of have no practical application and are very condescending it's beliefs like it's actually totally fine to be raised by a single mother and it it is not at all harder to raise a child on one income than two or whatever these kind of beliefs um and uh it reminds me a lot of that this idea that uh it's it's wrong to in building this housing which by the way would include 125 of 125 places for formerly homeless people to live right? Everyone living in the park could get a permanent apartment after this. Um, because there was 18 months where they can't live in this specific park and have the option to live in a motel, it is somehow displacing them and must be stopped, even if it means you know, throwing bottles and rocks at police officers and construction workers and uh, essentially halting the project, uh, which is really the tragedy of this, of this all.
0: Well, right. I mean, first off, this is UC Berkeley... Has a big problem with student housing. Yes, as and you
1: only house 22% of the students
0: there. Right, and so they either have to find apartments in a very expensive, uh, you know, part of California. Not that there are a whole lot of non-expensive parts of California these days, but um, but especially in that area. Um, or, as you report, they were they're sleeping in their cars to try to get by. So this is a this is a university that really needs more student housing in order to support its own student um, student base. But again, the, the idea here was that they were going to add one hundred and twenty five units for the homeless, and there were only I think um, at the start of this project I think you put it at forty nine or fifty homeless people that were actually living in the park, forty six of whom accepted. Um, uh, accommodations from the city. The city's involved in this as well, trying to trying to resolve this. And look, I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not a big left winger, and I, I, you know, I think that homelessness has other issues in play that we need to be d- discussing. Um, and I think there's a lot of condescension about homelessness about how well that's a lifestyle choice when it's really a whole lot of other things. But give the city credit; they're actually trying to do what they think is the right thing and, and looking out for these people. And you have even further left-wing people who not just protest this. I mean, I don't have a problem with people protesting, Emma, but actually commit violence against <laughs> against workers um, who they also supposedly, you know, uh, will will champion that are trying to build the housing that would that would solve these problems. I mean, just the the levels of irony here and hypocrisy uh, are just yeah, amazing.
1: It's absolutely maddening, right? This seems like something that, um, you know, kind of left wing housing advocates would be really in favor of, right? 125 homeless people that are currently living on the streets now have the opportunity to, to have a safe place to live, which would allow them to get maybe even out of that homelessness housing and afford their own apartment because they can now, you know, take a shower so they can go and get a job and, you know, all of these other kind of resources that allow people to get out of homelessness actually be made easier here, right? This seems like a very like good progressive policy and to other kind of left-wing concerns about something like gentrification. Like one of the best ways to reduce gentrification in a college town is to get more students in student housing. And so the kind of crummy apartments that college students are living in can be filled by poorer people in that community. Right? Right. And I've actually read people saying this will increase gentrification. This would actually really reduce gentrification. And so it is, it seems to me that my kind of view on this is that a lot of these protesters have very specific views about the park and want the park to remain untouched and are kind of searching for a politically noble seeming justification other than we just really like this park.
0: So it's nimbyism is really what this is. It's not my backyardism.
1: Yeah, it's a very specific form of this kind of like left wing nimbyism that's all about like, I, and, you know, I've also, I read a sub-sacral system saying, well, you know, they didn't build specifically rent-controlled housing, so this actually isn't good housing, so they shouldn't do this. And, no, it's like, it's dorms. Like, yeah. And, and housing for the homeless which will clearly be, like, massively reduced in price if it costs anything at all. Um,
0: rent but, control? I mean, honestly, okay. rent, rent control in a student dormitory. I, I Now, honestly, I have... I, well, I've, these days, it's hard to say I've heard it all because people are so creative in their insanity. But I mean, that's that's nonsense. That's a nonsense oh. argument in terms of in stu- student housing is always rent controlled. The the, the university right. controls the, the cost of it.
1: Right. And it is cheaper than what you would get in the community. Absolutely.
0: Like Berkeley. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, really almost any major college. Is usually located in a place where the rents are high. A lot of times, because the college is located there, and and they have a lot of students. and And your your point about gentrification is really well taken. Is that it's very disruptive sometimes in some of these neighborhoods, especially as they're transitioning, you know, through different um, demographic makeups. and And that happens all the time as well. But I, you know, to get back to the to get back to what's going on at Berkeley now, they were actually throwing rocks and other objects at the workers there the police didn't make any arrests but that's aggravated assault and the school pulled the construction workers out of there for good reason but how have they gone back Uh, this has been a few days now are they are they going to start this up again or are they going to stop uh stop the construction over this
1: i have i have not seen any more kind of movement on this story it's something i'm keeping an eye on but i haven't seen much more i hope They continue to build uh, housing in the park, but it seems as though there is a history of the university trying to use the park for some kind of facilities. Um, I think like a volleyball court at one point. Um, And every single time protests have gotten so intense and oppressive that actual construction on whatever facility has not been able to, to go forward, which is, of course, frustrating because the end result of this will the you know 125 people sleeping on the streets when they right. wouldn't have otherwise and 1100 berkeley students who are probably crammed like sardines in some one or two bedroom apartment paying you know an exorbitant amount when they could have an affordable um you know a, an affordable housing option that you know would also probably mean that they graduate with a bit less debt
0: True, or they're sleeping in their cars where they can be victimized. Right. Too. or they're
1: actually sleeping in a you know actually sleep, sleeping in a safe place, right? Because if you're sleeping in your car, you are also homeless, right?
0: Yes, by almost by definition, you're you're homeless yeah. by definition, and you're more vulnerable. And that is really the responsibility of the school to make sure that their students have those options. And they don't have to provide them, but they have to have options for these students. Uh, you know, it's a moral responsibility, if not a legal responsibility. For the, uh, for the university. And and again, I mean, I, I, I get back to another point that I think that we really should emphasize, which is that this wasn't a policy that was stopped because you had a school board meeting or you had a zoning commission meeting or you had a city council meeting where the permits were yanked. I mean, that would certainly be problematic too, but it would, it would be at least the use of a legal process. What you have here, Emma, is uh, violence settling public policy Which is dangerous, regardless of what the outcome of that is. You're setting the expectation that you're going to have to use violence in order to get anything done. And all that's going to breed is a violent response at some point um, to, to counter it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this has definitely been a trend in a lot of protests around Berkeley. I think, obviously, the Milo Yiannopoulos protests are a really good example of times in which there was a lot of violent protest in response to this left-wing protest movement. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously, the violence here is unacceptable. Of course, they, people have every right. In fact, they should protest if they don't like something. Um, but this really kind of goes beyond the pale, and it seems like it will simply have the effect of stopping uh construction not because the university realizes it's a bad idea but because they physically can't go through with it without putting their employees uh at, at some health risk
0: yeah I mean uh, to me that's the most i mean certainly it's frustrating in lots of different ways but I think the fact that we are legitimizing violence um, over over rational public policy making over rational self-governance is really going to create the rise of um, the worst kind of leadership, and and the worst kind of uh, cultural shift that you can have as a self-governing republic.
1: I strongly agree with that, and I think this is a trend that has been happening in the past couple of years on both the left and the right, where there's been this rise of the authoritarian right and the authoritarian left, where kind of principles that we that these kind of small l liberal principles kind of go out the window, right? Right. You where know, do we have this idea that you know whatever the people decide in a democracy you know, that should be the person who holds the elected position, you know, we should agree that free speech is ultimately good, because it, in fact, prevents violence from happening, it allows us to solve things with our words, you know, um, there there are these kind of strong, kind of almost individualistic, small l liberal values that kind of form the social contract that allow democracy to happen. And instead, you have no, our political goals matter more than anything else, and we should get them by any means necessary. This kind of, this idea, in which the ends always justify the means, even if the means are violent or corrupt or what have you, um, and I and I think it's incredibly troubling, and I find it particularly troubling that so many young people seem so kind of gung ho to embrace these kind of authoritarian politics, because these are you know hope you hope that they mature out of it, but at the same time, these are the people that are going to be leading us very soon.
0: Well, hopefully not quite so soon. I, I'm. <laughs> I mean, I, I was joking around with my granddaughter not too long ago. It was right before she went to college. And I said, uh, you know, um, she says, I said, you know, it's going to be your world at some point. It's still mine for right now. So just <laughs> keep that in mind. She laughed, you know, I said, I said just keep that in mind. Is It's still mine for the time being, but it's going to be yours soon enough. And you have to understand, you have to know what kind of world you want to live in. And, and, and I think that this... Um, you put it right. I mean, the authoritarian right and the authoritarian left, I think, um, are are driving to a politics where rationality and policy matters less than just the outcome of a power struggle. Um, and it's it, it, at, at a certain point, I Emma, mean, it's not even about policy. It's not about homeless policy. It's not about land use policy. It's simply about I am now in charge and I can exert my will over everybody else. And that is anything but self-governance.
1: Yeah, precisely. I mean, I I feel like one of the best things about living in a democracy is that other people get to do what they want, right? And that right. it, it's my job to tell other people what to do. And the only person whose actions I get to control or dictate are my own, right? Um, and it's great that other people make life choices that I would never make in a million years, right? That's what makes life have kind of texture and value and creativity in society. Um, but this problem which we want to kind of bend everyone to our will, and especially our ideological will, I think is ultimately destructive because it's not about persuasion, right? It's about coercion and intimidation. Right? If someone changes their mind to believe something that I also believe, I want it to be because I actually convinced them, right? Not because they were afraid of what would happen to them if they didn't agree with me.
0: That's exactly right. And... You're writing at the right place for that, by the way. Reason.com yes. is a terrific, it's a terrific platform. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, uh, uh, what you've done in the past, you've got actually a a, a really nice um, CV about, uh, you know, it, it in journalism. And I think have wound up at a, at a great platform with lots of great ideas.
1: Yeah, so I uh, have really enjoyed working at Reason so far. I've only been there for about, uh, I guess, a month and a half. Um, I graduated college in May at UVA after, I'd say, causing a bit of a stir because I had a New York Times op-ed entitled, I went to college, is eager to debate. I found self-censorship instead.
0: I remember that. It was an excellent essay. Yes.
1: Um, And I just had another uh, op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago um, about kind of consent and kind of college hookup culture, if you will, and sort of the ways in which it uh, exists. I would say it's a soft version of like here's the way in which the sexual revolution is kind of bad for women. Um, So kind of going in another angle of kind of like feminist law that I've been interested in writing about. Um, But yeah, a reason I I write about a lot of things, but I really enjoy writing about these kind of education kind of related issues, because I was so recently kind of in a university environment while I was at UVA, I did a lot of free speech activism and advocacy. I was an intern for fire. And so working at Reason has been really great because it's really allowed me to pursue all of my interests in this really, like, congenial, wonderful environment. So I highly recommend reading Reason to all of your listeners. Um, Everyone there works really hard and is really wonderful and deserves more eyeballs.
0: They are actually just a great group of folks. Uh, I've known Nick Gillespie for a very long time. He's still editor. He's still the editor, right? The editor-in-chief at... uh,
1: uh, no, that's Catherine
0: Ming. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's it's Catherine. Yes. But uh, I've known Nick for a very long time and um, I've been to the offices. Those are like the coolest offices too. I mean, it's. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I'm in it. I'm in it right now
1: in the podcast. Yeah, I know.
0: It's great. It's...
1: I have the little sound foam tiles around me.
0: <laughs> well, it looks great, but the offices are wonderful and it's gr- great folks and it's. You know, it's it's libertarian rather than conservative, but there's a lot of overlap there. And um, and I think that conservatives really need to have that sort of libertarian mind check every once in a while. And Reason is just smart, uh, consistent libertarianism and really enjoy reading it. And I'm really glad you're there. I think that it, you're you're going to do really well there. And I'm hoping you're going to come back and talk more about other work that you end up doing at Reason.com.
1: Oh, that, that would be wonderful. I, I really enjoy it for a reason. I'm very, I'm very, I feel very lucky that I am in this position.
0: So where else can people find you? Um, and your, your, I know that your Twitter handle, you're going to have to explain your Twitter handle just a little bit because <laughs> I, actually, I actually, I actually, behind it. Oh, well, let's hear the great story. <laughs>
1: there's a fantastic story. So my Twitter handle is Emma, but it's spelled with three M. So it's E-M-M-M-A underscore camp. Underscore in campus spelled C A M P like summer camp. So the story behind that is that there was a clerical error on my birth certificate, which made my legal name Emma, but spelled with three N's for 18 years.
0: Wow!
1: And I didn't know this because uh, my parent—it was—it's on my social security card too. My my parents didn't notice. I didn't notice until I was 15 and going to get my learner's permit. And the lady at the DMV says, "What's your name?" And I say, Emma Camp, and she says, and that's spelled with three M's? And I go, no. And she goes, not on your birth certificate. And this whole time, my, I didn't know, so my parents didn't know. So my actual learner's permit, which I still have around, has it spelled with three M's on there. They're they like, well, had, it's on your documentation. This is really a great story of government bureaucracy and how <laughs> infuriating it is. Um, and so I started getting a little stressed out about the fact that when you like take the SAT, your ID has to match your name and you felt like, I was worried that there would be some kind of, I would have to apply to college as Emma with 3Ms or there could be some kind of bureaucratical issue. Um, so I got it corrected, which is different from change. And so my parents had to dig up like. Uh, re- records from when they took me to the pediatrician when I was like nine months old and like my kindergarten public school registration forms to prove to the state that they meant to name me Emma, but with two M's <laughs> um, and uh not, you know, instead of with like three M's. And so I finally, I got it corrected when I was 17, almost 18. So that is the very rich story <laughs> behind my Twitter page.
0: I will never forget that it's 3Ms from this point to from this point forward either. I mean, that's a great story. And it's, it's a
1: fantastic act, story.
0: It's a great reason why you ended up at reason.com too. I mean, I'm thinking this this is like this is like some sort of, you know, uh, you know, you know, what's it called? The uh, harmonic convergence, right? Mm-hmm. Having lived that experience, it makes total sense why you're at reason.com. Nothing now. like
1: a particularly nasty interaction with the DMV to make you a libertarian. I hate this. Abolish <laughs> it. Wasting taxpayer money.
0: Well, there you go. So um, a, a, a justified libertarian is Emma Camp, not with three M's anymore, except on Twitter. So Emma with three M's underscore camp underscores where you can find her on Twitter. And uh, uh, Emma, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great talking with you. And again, look forward to talking to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, stay tuned for just a little bit more from The Ed Morrissey Show with one in Two R's and two S's. Thank you for watching and listening to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support The Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.